Part six of the Song of the Lark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. The Song of the Lark by Willa Seibert Cather. Part six, sections three and four. Three. For the first four years after Thee went to Germany, things went on as usual with the Kronberg family. Mrs. Kronberg's land in Nebraska increased in value and brought her in a good rental. The family drifted into an easy way of living, half without realizing it, as families will. Then Mr. Kronberg, who had never been ill, died suddenly of cancer of the liver, and after his death Mrs. Kronberg went, as her neighbors said, into a decline. Hearing discouraging reports of her from the physician who had taken over his practice, Dr. Archie went up from Denver to see her. He found her in bed, in the room where he had more than once attended her, a handsome woman of sixty, with a body still firm and white, her hair faded now to a very pale primrose, in two thick braids down her back, her eyes clear and calm. When the doctor arrived she was sitting up in her bed knitting. He felt at once how glad she was to see him, but he soon gathered that she had made no determination to get well. She told him, indeed, that she could not very well get along without Mr. Kronberg. The doctor looked at her with astonishment. Was it possible that she could miss the foolish old man so much? He reminded her of her children. Yes, she replied, the children are all very well, but they are not father. We were married young. The doctor watched her wonderingly as she went on knitting, thinking how much she looked like Thee. The difference was one of degree rather than of kind. The doctor had a compelling enthusiasm, the mother had none. But their framework, their foundation, was very much the same. In a moment Mrs. Kronberg spoke again. Have you heard anything from Thee lately? During his talk with her, the doctor gathered that what Miss Kronberg really wanted was to see her daughter Thee. Lying there day after day, she wanted it calmly and continuously. He told her that, since she felt so, he thought they might ask Thee to come home. I've thought a good deal about it, said Mrs. Kronberg slowly. I hate to interrupt her, now that she's begun to get advancement. I expect she's seen some pretty hard times, though she was never one to complain. Perhaps she'd feel that she would like to come. It would be hard, losing both of us while she's off there. When Dr. Archie got back to Denver, he wrote a long letter to Thee, explaining her mother's condition, and how much she wished to see her and asking Thee to come, if only for a few weeks. Thee had repaid the money she had borrowed from him, and he assured her that if she happened to be short of funds for the journey, she had only to cable him. A month later he got a frantic sort of reply from Thee. Complications in the opera at Dresden had given her an unhoped-for opportunity to go on in a big part. Before this letter reached the doctor, she would have made her debut as Elizabeth, in Tannhauser. She wanted to go to her mother more than she wanted anything else in the world, but unless she failed, which she would not, she absolutely could not leave Dresden for six months. It was not that she chose to stay, she had to stay or lose everything. The next few months would put her five years ahead, or would put her back so far that it would be of no use to struggle further. As soon as she was free, she would go to Moonstone and take her mother back to Germany with her. Her mother, she was sure, could live for years yet, and she would like German people and German ways. 
and could be hearing music all the time. Thea said she was writing her mother and begging her to help her one last time, to get strength and to wait for her six months, and then she, Thea, would do everything. Her mother would never have to make an effort again. Dr. Archie went up to Moonstone at once. He had great confidence in Mrs. Kronberg's power of will, and if Thea's appeal took hold of her enough, he believed she might get better. But when he was shown into the familiar room off the parlor, his heart sank. Mrs. Kronberg was lying serene and fateful on her pillows. On the dresser at the foot of her bed there was a large photograph of Thea in the character in which she was to make her debut. Mrs. Kronberg pointed to it. "'Isn't she lovely, doctor? It's nice that she hasn't changed much. I've seen her look like that many a time.' They talked for a while about Thea's good fortune. Mrs. Kronberg had had a cablegram saying, First performance well received. Great relief. In her letter, Thea said, If you'll only get better, dear mother, there's nothing I can't do. I will make a really great success, if you'll try with me. You shall have everything you want, and we will always be together. I have a little house all picked out where we are to live. Bringing up a family is not all it's cracked up to be, Mrs. Kronberg said with a flicker of irony, as she tucked the letter back under her pillow. The children you don't especially need, you have always with you, like the poor. But the bright ones get away from you. They have to go their own way in the world. Seems like the brighter they are, the farther they go. I used to feel sorry that you had no family, doctor, but maybe you're as well off. These plans seem sound to me, Mrs. Kronberg. There's no reason I can see why you shouldn't pull up and live for years yet, under proper care. You have the best doctors in the world over there, and it would be wonderful to live with anybody who looks like that. He nodded at the photograph of the young woman, who must have been singing, Dicker holly i grus ica weed, her eyes looking up, her beautiful hands outspread with pleasure. Mrs. Kronberg laughed quite cheerfully. Yes, wouldn't it? If father were here, I might rouse myself, but sometimes it's hard to come back. Or if she were in trouble, maybe I could rouse myself. But dear Mrs. Kronberg, she is in trouble, her old friend expostulated. As she says, she's never needed you as she needs you now. I make my guess that she's never begged anybody to help her before. Mrs. Kronberg smiled. Yes, it's pretty of her, but that will pass. When these things happen far away, they don't make such a mark, especially if your hands are full and you've duties of your own to think about. My own father died in Nebraska when Gunner was born. We were living in Iowa then, and I was sorry, but the baby made it up to me. I was father's favorite, too. That's the way it goes, you see. The doctor took out Thee's letter to him and read it over to Mrs. Kronberg. She seemed to listen and not to listen. When he finished, she said thoughtfully, I'd counted on hearing her sing again, but I always took my pleasures as they come. I always enjoyed her singing when she was here about the house. While she was practicing, I often used to leave my work and sit down in a rocker and give myself up to it, the same as if I'd been at an entertainment. I was never one of those housekeepers that let their work drive them to death, and when she had the Mexicans over here, I always took it in, first and last, she glanced judiciously at the photograph. I guess I got about as much out of Thee's voice as anybody will ever get. I guess you did, the doctor assented heartily, and I got a good deal myself. You remember how she used to sing those Scotch songs for me, 
and lead us with her head, her hair bobbing? Flow gently, sweet often. I can hear it now, said Mrs. Kronberg, and poor father never knew when he sang sharp. He used to say, Mother, how do you always know when they make mistakes practicing? Mrs. Kronberg chuckled. Dr. Archie took her hand, still firm like the hand of a young woman. It was lucky for her that you did know. I always thought she got more from you than from any of her teachers. Except once. He was a real musician, said Mrs. Kronberg respectfully. I gave her what chance I could in a crowded house. I kept the other children out of the parlor for her. That was about all I could do. If she wasn't disturbed, she needed no watching. She went after it like a terrier after rats from the first, poor child. She was downright afraid of it. That's why I always encouraged her taking Thor off to outlandish places. When she was out of the house, then she was rid of it. After they had recalled many pleasant memories together, Mrs. Kronberg said suddenly, I always understood about her going off without coming to see us that time. Oh, I know. You had to keep your own counsel. You were a good friend to her. I've never forgot that. She patted the doctor's sleeve and went on absently. There was something she didn't want to tell me, and that's why she didn't come. Something happened when she was with those people in Mexico. I worried for a good while, but I guess she's come out of it all right. She's had a pretty hard time, scratching along alone like that when she was so young, and my farms in Nebraska were down so low that I couldn't help her none. That's no way to send a girl out. But I guess, whatever there was, she wouldn't be afraid to tell me now. Mrs. Kronberg looked up at the photograph with a smile. She doesn't look like she was beholding to anybody, does she? She isn't, Mrs. Kronberg. She never has been. That was why she borrowed the money from me. Oh, I knew she'd never have sent for you if she'd done anything to shame us. She was always proud. Mrs. Kronberg paused and turned a little on her side. It's been quite a satisfaction to you and me, doctor, having her voice turn out so fine. The things you hope for don't always turn out like that by a long sight. As long as old Mrs. Kohler lived, she used always to translate what it said about thee in the German newspaper she sent. I could make some of it out myself. It's not very different from Swedish, but it pleased the old lady. She left thee her peace picture of the burning of Moscow. I've got it put away in mothballs for her, along with the oboe her grandfather brought from Sweden. I want her to take father's oboe back there some day. Mrs. Kronberg paused a moment and compressed her lips. But I guess she'll take a finer instrument than that with her back to Sweden, she added. Her tone fairly startled the doctor. It was so vibrating with a fierce, defiant kind of pride he had heard often in Fee's voice. He looked down wonderingly at his old friend and patient. After all, one never knew people to the core. Did she, within her, hide some of that still passion of which her daughter was all compact? That last summer at home wasn't very nice for her. Mrs. Kronberg began as placidly as if the fire had never leaped up in her. The other children were acting up because they thought I might make a fuss over her and give her the big head. We gave her the dare, somehow, the lot of us, because we couldn't understand her changing teachers and all that. That's the trouble about giving the dare to them quiet, unboastful children. You never know how far it'll take them. Well, we ought not to complain, Doctor. She's given us a good deal to think about. The next time Dr. Archie came to Moonstone, he came to be a pallbearer at Mrs. Kronberg's funeral. 
When he last looked at her, she was so serene and queenly that he went back to Denver feeling almost as if he had helped to bury Thea Kronberg herself. The handsome head in the coffin seemed to him much more really Thea than did the radiant young woman in the picture, looking about at the Gothic vaultings and greeting the Hall of Song. One bright morning, late in February, Dr. Archie was breakfasting comfortably at the Waldorf. He had got into Jersey City on an early train, and a red, windy sunrise over the North River had given him a good appetite. He consulted the morning paper while he drank his coffee, and saw that Lohengrin was to be sung at the opera that evening. In the list of artists who would appear was the name Kronborg. Such abruptness rather startled him. Kronborg, it was impressive and yet somehow disrespectful, somewhat rude and brazen on the back page of the morning paper. After breakfast, he went to the hotel ticket office and asked the girl if she could give him something for a Lohengrin near the front. His manner was a trifle awkward, and he wondered whether the girl noticed it. Even if she did, of course, she could scarcely suspect. Before the ticket stand, he saw a bunch of blue posters announcing the opera cast for the week. There was Lohengrin, and under it he saw Elsa von Brabrandt v. Kronborg. That looked better. The girl gave him a ticket for a seat, which she said was excellent. He paid for it and went out to the cab stand. He mentioned to the driver a number on Riverside Drive and got into a taxi. It would not, of course, be the right thing to call upon Thee when she was going to sing in the evening. He knew that much, thank goodness. Fred Ottenberg had hinted to him that, more than almost anything else, that would put one in wrong. When he reached the number to which he directed his letters, he dismissed the cab and got out for a walk. The house in which Thee lived was as impersonal as the Waldorf and quite as large. It was above 116th Street, where the drive narrows, and in front of it the shelving bank dropped to the North River. As Archie strolled about the paths which traversed the slope below the street level, the fourteen stories of the apartment hotel rose above him like a perpendicular cliff. He had no idea on which floor Thee lived, but he reflected, as his eye ran over the many windows, that the outlook would be fine from any floor. The forbidding hugeness of the house made him feel as if he had expected to meet Thee in a crowd and had missed her. He did not really believe that she was hidden away behind any of those glittering windows, or that he was to hear her this evening. His walk was curiously uninspiring and unsuggestive. Presently remembering that Ottenburg had encouraged him to study his lesson, he went down to the opera house and bought a libretto. He had even brought his old Adler's German and English in his trunk, and after luncheon he settled down in his gilded suite at the Waldorf with a big cigar and the text of Lohengrin. The opera was announced for 7.45, but at half-past seven Archie took his seat in the right front of the orchestra circle. He had never been inside the Metropolitan Opera House before, and the height of the audience room, the rich color, and the sweep of the balconies were not without their effect upon him. He watched the house fill with a growing feeling of expectation. When the steel curtain rose and the men of the orchestra took their places, he felt distinctly nervous. The burst of applause which greeted the conductor keyed him still higher. He found that he had taken off his gloves and twisted them to a string. When the lights went down and the violins began to the overture, the place looked larger than ever, a great pit, shadowy and solemn. The whole atmosphere, he reflected, 
was somehow more serious than he had anticipated. After the curtains were drawn back upon the scene, beside Bischfeld, he got readily into the swing of the story. He was so much interested in the bass, who sang King Henry, that he almost forgot for what he was waiting so nervously. When the herald began in stentorian tones to summon Elsa von Brabrandt, then he began to realize that he was rather frightened. There was a flutter of white at the back of the stage, and women began to come in. Two, four, six, eight, but not the right one. It flashed across him that this was something like buck fever, the paralyzing moment that comes upon a man when his first elk looks at him through the bushes, under its great antlers, the moment when a man's mind is so full of shooting that he forgets the gun in his hand until the buck nods adieu to him from a distant hill. All at once, before the buck had left him, she was there. Yes, unquestionably it was she. Her eyes were downcast, but the head, the cheeks, the chin, there could be no mistake. She advanced slowly, as if she were walking in her sleep. Someone spoke to her. She only inclined her head. He spoke again, and she bowed her head still lower. Archie had forgotten his libretto, and he had not counted upon these long pauses. He had expected her to appear and sing and reassure him. They seemed to be waiting for her. Did she ever forget? Why in thunder didn't she? She made a sound, a faint one. The people on the stage whispered together and seemed confounded. His nervousness was absurd. She must have done this often before. She knew her bearings. She made another sound, but he could make nothing of it. Then the king sang to her, and Archie began to remember where they were in the story. She came to the front of the stage, lifted her eyes for the first time, clasped her hands, and began, Ensam en Truven Tagen. Yes, it was exactly like Buck Fever. Her face was always there, toward the house now, before his eyes, and he positively could not see it. She was singing, at last, and he positively could not hear her. He was conscious of nothing but an uncomfortable dread, and a sense of crushing disappointment. He had, after all, missed her. Whatever was there, she was not there, for him. The king interrupted her. She began again. Lichter Waffenschein. Archie did not know when his buck fever passed, but presently he found that he was sitting quietly in a darkened house, not listening to, but dreaming upon a river of silver sound. He felt apart from the others, drifting alone on the melody, as if he had been alone with it for a long while, and had known it all before. His power of attention was not great just then, but in so far as it went he seemed to be looking through an exalted calmness at a beautiful woman from far away, from another sort of life, and feeling and understanding than his own, who had in her face something he had known long ago, much brightened and beautified. As a lad he used to believe that the faces of people who died were like that in the next world, the same faces, but shining with the light of a new understanding. No, Ottenburg had not prepared him. What he felt was admiration and estrangement. The homely reunion that he had somehow expected now seemed foolish. Instead of feeling proud that he knew her better than all these people around him, he felt chagrined at his own ingenuousness for he did not know her better. This woman he had never known. She had somehow devoured his little friend, as the wolf ate up Red Riding Hood. Beautiful, radiant, tender as she was, she chilled his old affection. 
that sort of feeling was not appropriate. She seemed much, much further away from him than she had seemed all those years when she was in Germany. The ocean he could cross, but there was something here he could not cross. There was a moment when she turned to the king and smiled that rare sunrise smile of her childhood when he thought she was coming back to him. After the herald's second call for her champion, when she knelt in her impassioned prayer, there was something again familiar, a kind of wild wonder that she had had the power to call up long ago. But she merely reminded him of Thee. This was not the girl herself. After the tenor came on, the doctor ceased trying to make the woman before him fit into any of his cherished recollections. He took her, in so far as he could, for what she was then and there. When the knight raised the kneeling girl and put his mailed hand on her hair, when she lifted to him a face full of worship and passionate humility, Archie gave up his last reservation. He knew no more about her than did the hundreds around him, who sat in the shadow and looked on, as he looked, some with more understanding, some with less. He knew as much about Ortrude, or Lohengrin, as he knew about Elsa, more, because she went further than they. She sustained the legendary beauty of her conception more consistently. Even he could see that. Attitudes, movements, her face, her white arms and fingers, everything was suffused with a rosy tenderness, a warm humility, a gracious and yet to him wholly estranging beauty. During the balcony singing in the second act, the doctor's thoughts were as far away from Moonstone as the singers doubtless were. He had begun, indeed, to feel the exhilaration of getting free from personalities, of being released from his own past, as well as from Thee Kronborg's. It was very much, he told himself, like a military funeral, exalting and impersonal. Something old died in one, and out of it something new was born. During the duet with Ortrude, with the splendors of the wedding processional, this new feeling grew and grew. At the end of the act there were many curtain calls, and Elsa acknowledged them, brilliant, gracious, spirited, with her far-breaking smile. But on the whole she was harder and more self-contained before the curtain than she was in the scene behind it. Archie did his part in the applause that greeted her, but it was the new and wonderful he applauded, not the old and dear. His personal, proprietary pride in her was frozen out. He walked about the house during the entr'acte, and here and there among the people in the foyer he caught the name Kronborg. On the staircase in front of the coffee-room, a long-haired youth with a fat face was discoursing to a group of old women about Dick Kronborg. Dr. Archie gathered that he had crossed on the boat with her. After the performance was over, Archie took a taxi and started for Riverside Drive. He meant to see it through tonight. When he entered the reception hall of the hotel, before which he had strolled that morning, the hall porter challenged him. He said he was waiting for Miss Kronborg. The porter looked at him suspiciously and asked whether he had an appointment. He answered brazenly that he had. He was not used to being questioned by hall boys. Archie sat first in one tapestry chair and then in another, keeping a sharp eye on the people who came in and went up in the elevators. He walked about and looked at his watch. An hour dragged by. No one had come in from the street now, for about twenty minutes, when two women entered, carrying a great many flowers, and followed by a tall young man in chauffeur's uniform. Archie advanced toward the taller of the two women, who was veiled and carried her head very firmly. He confronted her just as she reached the elevator. 
Although he did not stand directly in her way, something in his attitude compelled her to stop. She gave him a piercing, defiant glance through the white scarf that covered her face. Then she lifted her hand and brushed the scarf back from her head. There was still black on her brows and lashes. She was very pale, and her face was drawn and deeply lined. She looked, the doctor told himself with a sinking heart, forty years old. Her suspicious, mystified stare cleared slowly. Pardon me, the doctor murmured, not knowing just how to address her here before the porters. I came up from the opera. I merely wanted to say good-night to you. Without speaking, still looking incredulous, she pushed him into the elevator. She kept her hand on his arm while the cage shot up, and she looked away from him, frowning, as if she were trying to remember or realize something. When the cage stopped, she pushed him out of the elevator through another door, which a maid opened, into a square hall. There she sank down on a chair and looked up at him. "'Why didn't you let me know?' she asked in a hoarse voice. Archie heard himself laughing the old, embarrassed laugh that seldom happened to him now. "'Oh, I wanted to take my chance with you, like anybody else. It's been so long now.' She took his hand through her thick glove, and her head dropped forward. "'Yes, it has been long,' she said in the same husky voice. "'And so much has happened.' "'And you were so tired, and I am a clumsy old fellow to break in on you tonight,' the doctor added sympathetically. "'Forgive me this time.' He bent over and put his hand soothingly on her shoulder. He felt a strong shudder run through her from head to foot. Still bundled in her fur coat as she was, she threw both arms about him and hugged him. "'Oh, Dr. Archie! Dr. Archie!' she shook him. "'Don't let me go. Hold on. Now you're here.' She laughed, breaking away from him at the same moment and sliding out of her fur coat. She left it for the maid to pick up and pushed the doctor into the sitting-room, where she turned on the lights. Let me look at you. Yes, hands, feet, head, shoulders, just the same. You've grown no older. You can't say as much for me, can you? She was standing in the middle of the room in a white silk shirtwaist and a short black velvet skirt, which somehow suggested that they had cut off her petticoats all around about. She looked distinctly clipped and plucked. Her hair was parted in the middle and done very close to her head, as she had worn it under the wig. She looked like a fugitive, who had escaped from something in clothes caught up at hazard. It flashed across Dr. Archie that she was running away from the other woman down at the opera house, who had used her hardly. He took a step toward her. I can't tell a thing in the world about you, Thee, if I may still call you that. She took hold of the collar of his overcoat. Yes, call me that. Do. I like to hear it. You frighten me a little, but I expect I frighten you more. I'm always a scarecrow after I sing a long part like that. So high, too. She absently pulled out the handkerchief that protruded from his breast pocket and began to wipe the black paint off her eyebrows and lashes. I can't take you in much tonight, but I must see you for a little while. She pushed him to a chair. I shall be more recognizable tomorrow. You mustn't think of me as you see me tonight. Come out for tomorrow afternoon and have tea with me, can you? That's good. She sat down in a low chair beside him and leaned forward, drawing her shoulders together. She seemed to him inappropriately young and inappropriately old, shorn of her long tresses at one end and of her long robes at the other. How do you happen to be here? she asked abruptly. How can you leave a silver mine? I couldn't. Sure, nobody'll cheat you but you can explain everything tomorrow. She paused. You remember how you sewed me up in a poultice once? I wish you could tonight. 
I need a poultice from top to toe. Something very disagreeable happened down there. You said you were out front? Oh, don't say anything about it. I always know exactly how it goes, unfortunately. I was rotten in the balcony. I never get that. You didn't notice it? Probably not, but I did. Here the maid appeared at the door, and her mistress rose. My supper? Very well, I'll come. I'd ask you to stay, doctor, but there wouldn't be enough for two. They seldom send up enough for one, she spoke bitterly. I haven't got a sense of you yet, turning directly to Archie again. You haven't been here. You've only announced yourself and told me you are coming tomorrow. You haven't seen me either. This is not I, but I'll be here waiting for you tomorrow. My whole works. Good night till then. She patted him absently on the sleeve and gave him a little shove toward the door. End of Part 6, Sections 3 and 4 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah